Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Today, we have an extremely special featured guest with us, Philip Cross. He's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, previously having spent 36 years at Statistics Canada specializing in macroeconomics. He's the former chief economic analyst at Statistics Canada and was responsible for ensuring quality and coherency of all major economic statistics. It is truly my pleasure to welcome Philip to the show. Firstly, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and your work at Statistics Canada and for the McDonald Laurier Institute. Well, at Statistics Canada, I was in charge of data coherence and making sure that uh, Statistics Canada didn't knowingly publish mistakes. And a, a big part of that is looking across the data and make sure that what we're saying about inflation and what we're saying about unemployment and what we're saying about output and what we're saying about the balance of payments, that it all fits together. Uh, that economic theory suggests there is an interrelationship amongst these different variables. So that's where I developed my, uh, my macroeconomic interest. I had a special interest in business cycles. I produced a leading indicator for StatCan. I developed a chronology of recessions and expansions, and I became quite interested in the cyclical uh, turns of the economy. And since leaving Canada, I've been able to elaborate on this a great deal. And I've done a lot of research in macroeconomics, but especially in areas uh, like innovation and the, the determinants of long-term growth and, uh, and also in the efficacy of macroeconomic policymaking. Uh, I've pretty, uh, become, become increasingly skeptical about whether the repeated stimulus we've been injecting into the Western economies since basically the great financial crisis of 2008, that it's not just having diminishing returns, but it might actually be harming growth over the longer term. So uh, I've been able to build on, but also extend what uh, I began in Statistics Canada. And frankly, I think I've learned probably more in the, in the 10 years since leaving StatCan and in the 36 years I was there. Well, that's that's certainly an, an incredible background. I'm, I'm sure there are very few people that can match your level of experience and expertise in this area. So I wanted to ask you about a recent piece you wrote for the Financial Post that piqued my interest. You claim that, quote, poor policy is causing slower economic growth, and you strongly argued against the view that economic stagnation is inevitable due to a decline in progress, as the technological advances of the 20th century will fail to be repeated. Um, so could you please give us an example of the poor policy that you talk about and how it hurts growth? Yeah, well, uh, just elaborating on my previous answer, uh, a lot of these policies are meant to be short-term stimulus, uh, both fiscal and monetary policy. What people don't realize is that what's good for the economy in the short term is awfully, uh, often bad for the economy in the long term and vice versa. Uh, for example, uh, it may uh, help in the, uh, the economy in the long term to shut down uh, certain companies or industries in the short term that have low productivity and aren't competitive. That's going to hurt the economy in the, in the short term, but it frees up resources to move to more productive areas in the long term. Similarly, in, in the short term, it might pay to uh, uh, stimulate the economy with uh, large um, tax cuts or transfers to people or low interest rates. But we know this introduces distortions in the economy over the longer term, that deficits harm growth over the longer term, that low interest rates create 
stresses in the financial system and encourage bubbles in asset markets that are actually de depress growth in the longer term. So a lot of these policies come back to the uh, the uh, short-term stimulative monetary and fiscal policies we see not just in Canada, but throughout the Western world over the last 10 years, and that were substantially increased during the, the pandemic. Um, but there, there's other policies uh, specific to Canada that have hurt growth over the longer term. We and people in the United States probably don't appreciate this because you don't have the same problem there. But Canada has been hampering its its energy sector, particularly its oil and gas development. Um, we've been uh, very slow to develop pipelines, approve LNG products. And in fact, what we're seeing is the Americans are eating our lunch in that increasingly. It's Americans that are supplying uh, li liquefied natural gas, LNG, to Europe during its developing gas crisis. Um, so Canada's passed up on a lot of opportunities uh, because of an overzealous pursuit of regulatory and, and particular environmental policies. Well, I see a strong connection between um, the sorts of, you know, policies that you mentioned that are extremely effective, um, you know, at producing sh uh, short term results. So, um, you know, the, the sort of stimulatory um, monetary and fiscal policy that provide a boost. Um, I think one of the reasons that we see for that is, um, especially in the United States as well, um, is around election season. You, you have, um, you know, politicians trying to get elected um, and, and once they get into office, they want to fulfill all the big promises they made along the campaign trail. Um, so it really helps um, if politicians right before an election or during that cycle, they can provide a big boost to the economy. Everyone's income goes up, you know, yeah. they, they, they can all of a sudden afford more things um, and they fail to look at the, the long term impacts of, of what's actually going on. So how how do how would you reconcile the 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 political benefits of um, you know sh providing a short term boost with the with the long run harms of doing such um, doing such things? Well, that's a good point. Uh, unfortunately, it's enough time has passed since the the last time that debt was a crisis in in uh, this country that people have forgotten that uh, you basically have to rely on people to see through these lies and manipulations but uh, the sad truth is in the short term it did work in the latest cycle um donald trump and uh, justin trudeau pushed hundreds of billions of dollars out the door during the pandemic they especially wanted their names on the checks that went to households so we saw in north america governments gave money directly to people who lost their jobs during the pandemic. And the result was we broke that connection between the employer and employee. We're now seeing in North America very severe labor shortages because we're having a lot of trouble reestablishing that connection that a, a lot of employees who uh, uh, lost their jobs, uh, took that money from governments and either left the labor force or they got a job elsewhere or they went and went back to school. And anyway, a lot of industries, particularly those industries that were hardest hit by the pandemic, uh, like restaurants and hotels and so on, are having the most trouble finding workers. This is completely different from the experience we've seen in Europe, where employees were treated as on furlough from their employer and governments rooted their aid to employees through the employer 
And it kept that connection between the employer and employee. So we're not seeing anywhere near like the same labor shortages in North America. And it all comes down to basically Eagle, that uh, a couple of leaders here in North America wanted to see their names on checks that went out to people just before an election in 2020 in the United States and 2021 here in Canada. And it, it uh, you know, it appears to have worked. It shored up support for Trump. It helped Trudeau win a minority government here in Canada. Um, but uh, the point is, people weren't punny. You know, people should have looked at this and said, my God, you're trying to buy my vote. Uh, this is the cheapest form of politics I can imagine. You don't deserve my vote. Uh, but in, instead, uh, you know, people didn't uh, call the politicians bluff. But the only way to, to stop people from being bought with their own money is, is to is for people to be smart enough to point it out and say to politicians, we're not going to allow you to do it. If you allow politicians to do it, they're going to do it all day long because at the end of the day, it's not their money. And when the bill come due, comes due, they won't be around. They won't be in office. So, um, you know, you can't outlaw lying in politics. So it's, it's up to people to, to uh, take this upon themselves. So I think this 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 sort of um, issue really speaks to the heart of, of democratic systems um, across the Western world world as a whole. Um, famously, Socrates um, gave an example about how in an election, um, if there were two two candidates, one was a doctor and the other was a sweet shop owner and, and voters had to choose, um, you know, doctor gives you um, disgusting tasting medicines. He, he performs surgeries on you. He hurts you, but it's for your benefit. And, and the sweet shop owner gives you sweets. He gives you candy. Um, you know, it, it, it makes you feel good in the short term, but it ruins you. Um, it ruins your health. Um, so which one would voters choose? And, and he postulated that voters would almost always choose the sweet shop owner. So that 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 sort of thing really does speak to, to the mindset of of voters as a as a whole as a collective um and their tendencies and another issue where i, I see this strong sort of connection um, between um you know political the, the political connection to poor economic um policy is um the rhetoric and the policy surrounding um income and wealth inequality so um especially with the extreme disparities in wealth um i'm sure there are significant um, income inequalities um, in in Canada. Um, they're much, much more pronounced in the United States as well, with certain founders of large corporations or CEOs making hundreds or thousands of times what their employees make. Um, so from an economic standpoint, do you view the fact that a small group of people hold a large amount of wealth as an issue that needs government intervention or redistribution or the way many others view it is just the, the inevitable byproduct of an advanced and wealthy society that that's bound to happen? Yeah, well, there's certainly nothing inevitable about it here in Canada. I mean, one of the problems uh, we have in Canada is that we don't have enough rich people. I wish we had the U.S. problem of inequality. I wish we had. I wish we had more rich people because it would mean we had more world-beating global success stories, such as, I mean, you look at every country in the world wants to emulate the U.S. technology sector. Uh, the things that the Americans have done with Amazon, with Google, with Apple, I mean, it's the envy of the world. Uh, the fact that this has created great wealth for some people is, um, 
to, you know, to be lauded. Uh, they produced products that people wanted. Uh, as I say, I just wish we could do more of that here in Canada. So, you know, do I do I regard it as a big problem? I, I know people in the U.S. regard it as a problem. Um, but, you know, I think people from outside the United States look at the U.S. and, and uh, often pull quite different conclusions. Uh, but certainly, does it, is it something that requires government intervention? No. What it does feed, though, is um, it feeds this idea that, you know, all the major Western countries have come out of the pandemic with huge government de deficits. I mean, this was a, an economic collapse of historic proportions. The, a huge deficit was unavoidable in the short term. The problem is now the hunt is on as the Wall Street Journal actually had a very interesting article yesterday where the headline was the hunt for money. And that's what we're in now. And in the short term, everybody's hoping to we can pass this huge bill from the pandemic on to a small number of rich people or a small number of wealthy corporations. And, you know, that's that's the short term reflex. I mean, you talked earlier about how our political system wants to buy people. Well, if you can't buy people, if you're going to have to raise taxes, let's pretend in the short term that we can do it with only hurting a few people. The problem is it doesn't work. Uh, the corporations, uh, the, if you look at the share of corporations in the, in the overall corporate taxes and overall GDP, it's remarkably steady over time. Corporations sit up nights. Uh, they're very good at, at moving money around and keeping their, their tax bill under control. The problem with the wealth tax is, frankly, especially in, in places like Canada, there's just not enough wealthy, uh, wealthy people around. You could take all of their money um, and it still wouldn't make a dent in the deficit. So inevitably, if you're going to deal with uh, deficits, you're going to have to raise uh, broad-based consumption taxes, uh, like the, the goods and services tax we have here in Canada, or things like fuel taxes or, or you know, sales taxes that affect uh, everyday purchases, or you're going to have to raise the income tax in the middle class. There's just no getting around it. That's where most of the money is. And if you're going to raise the large amounts of money needed to pay the pandemic, inevitably, you're going to be forced into uh, these broad-based taxes. Uh, it's really is just a fantasy that we can slough off the, the bill for this on a few rich people and a few corporations. Uh, it's just an extension of the uh, the populist fantasy that we talked about in in the previous in our previous question. Yeah, and again, it, it's it's very closely connected to how voters feel because I mean, any anyone can get up on a stage during election time and say, "Well, you're going to get all this money, and you know, yeah. you're going to get um, free healthcare and free college and all sorts of stuff," and you know. Um, the, the the bill is going to go to some faceless entity. It's going to go to some yeah. multinational corporation or some wealthy person who has you know billions of dollars lying around in his basement that he's not using, or something like that. Um, and and it creates this sort of fantasy um, amongst a, a large group of people who feel who who, who demonize um, this this group of wealthy people and wealthy corporations. Um, uh, uh, so th I think the issue here is is twofold. Um, first of all, when when we look at wealthy people um, all across the world, um, 
for 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 the large in the large in large part the the wealth of very rich people um is very illiquid um i think something like 94% of the wealth of the top 0.1% um in the united states is held as equity in private business um so you know it's not it's not sitting in cash in a bank account or it's not in yeah. you know yachts and um supercars and mansions and all sorts of things um it's it's put into businesses it's it's put into angel investment um and, and all sorts of things so and the second part as you mentioned um the, the the amount of money that's held by the wealthy and corporations even if you could possibly take it all it would barely make a dent in the deficit if if um, the united states government confiscated the wealth of every single billionaire all of it um it would only fend, um fund the federal government for about eight months so yeah. that's um obviously um there there's there's quite a lot of um false information and and, and a lot of fantasy out there so i i want to yeah. moving on um in your recent study um titled canada's faltering business dynamism and lagging innovation you spoke out against government regulations such as patents tariffs occupational licensing rules restrictions on foreign investment price fixing all of which um you claim hurt innovation and gdp growth can you please tell us a little bit more about the kind of regulation you think is hurting innovation and what is causing those sorts of regulations to firstly be enacted and then remain in place? Yeah, well, it's a particular problem here in Canada. I mean, you go back to, uh, again, our previous the previous question. We don't have the, the number of wealthy people and of uh, large corporations that have succeeded in the global stage that the United States has. And one reason, an important reason for that is we have a, the business model here in Canada is much more based on rent seeking. That is seeking out special privileges and, and uh, favors from government. Uh, whereas in the U.S., there's a lot less rent seeking and instead the business model is much more based on let's build innovative products that people here and around the world will simply throw money at us to have. Uh, you know, guess which one leads to more innovation and longer-term growth in the longer term. So, uh, but as I say, you know, there's a lot of rent-seeking here in Canada. A very good example is uh, of the difference in Canada and the United States in this regard is uh, interprovincial trade barriers. That the United States, uh, Citizens Canada did a very interesting study of how trade flows within Canada and the United States. They found that in the United States, trade flows across state borders as if there's no tariff at all. There is a common market. There is a integrated domestic market in the United States. The United States functions like a real country. Uh, they have barriers to to trade from other countries, but within the United States, there aren't uh, unbalanced any. Whereas in Canada, just Canada found that trade flowed between the provinces as if there's a permanent seven percent tariff barrier. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's always tariffs. There's a lot of restrictions. For example, uh, I live here in Ontario. Uh, if I was a construction worker, I could not work across the just across the river in Quebec. Uh, because there's uh, provincial laws preventing that. Um, there's a, a lot of restrictions on that. You can't buy alcohol in one province and carry it across the border to another province. That ruling was actually supported by the Supreme Court recently, even though it's explicitly in our constitution that governments will not restrict inter interprovincial trade. 
So uh, it's it's a really uh, systemic, uh, deep-rooted problem here in Canada that uh, firms and look at government as uh, a tool to use to erect uh, barriers to entry or uh, to reduce competition so it makes it easier for individual firms to raise prices and make money, but that in fact impoverishes the consumer. Uh, the point of Adam Smith wrote uh, hundreds of years ago, the point of all economic activity is not production, it's consumption. The consumer should be sovereign, should be king. And too often in, in Canada, we, uh, we develop policies that, produce the, that favor the producer and in fact penalize the consumer. And the result is the standard of living here in Canada is about 20% lower than the United States and has been falling over time. Yeah, and I think this sort of um, speaks to the to the national ethos as well, and the differences between the United States and Canada. Um, where I think a lot of times when states um, enact, you know, some some sort of tariff or rules, like you said, where you can't carry alcohol across state lines, you can't work across state lines. You know, businesses have significant barriers to coming and and, and moving commerce over over state lines to selling their products and moving their people around. Um, I think a lot of times that speaks to how people where where people's loyalties lie. So, I mean, people in Ontario, the reason that sort of um, that, that sort of, you know, uh, independence as a state and, and, you know, trying to shield off anyone from the outside um, is almost what individual nations tend to do um, with with other like neighboring countries where they have a, a provincial or a state pride um, where they say, well, these are our, our local consumers and these are our local businesses. And in order to protect them, we have to shield um, them from all sorts of um, companies and people from every other province. So um, that, that this certainly um, is, is very interesting um, in terms of how, how it speaks to the, um, the values and the philosophy of people that underlie that um, underlie this sort of system. So such heavy government regulation often tends to be especially popular amongst populist politicians and many voters um, who who view such involvement as necessary to protect the local businesses, local manufacturers and the working class. So how would you respond to voters, um, especially in Canada, who feel that loosening such restrictions to interprovincial trade um, will hurt their own uh, local companies or their local businesses? Well, I would uh, look at the track record of our free trade agreements, for example. Canada is uh, probably alone amongst the G7 nations where a majority of people are in favor of free trade. And it shows that Canada is also the only uh, G7 member that has free trade agreements with all the other G7 nations. We have a free trade agreement called CETA with Europe. We recently signed the TPP with Japan and, and other countries. We are, of course, a longstanding member of NAFTA. And generally speaking, this has paid off. Uh, Canada has overall benefited from free trade. Um, now, that may be partly because our, you know, the things that we trade, particularly our resources, are usually inputs into the production in other countries. So countries aren't going to tax them. 
nobody's going to want to raise the price of their own inputs. The one exception is lumber to the U.S. and don't even get Canadians going on that. I mean, that's been going on for 100 years. Why Americans want to jack up the price of lumber and the price of homes that they're going to live in, nobody here in Canada can understand. But that's obviously what uh, the lumber lobby holds sway in Washington. So uh, uh, put that one aside. But uh, generally speaking, free trade has has been a success here in this country. So it's it's very hypocritical. Canada on the international stage is very much in favor of free trade. And the population in majority supports that. And yet when it comes to trading within Canada, we don't carry over that same lesson here. And we don't see that the interprovincial trade barriers are harmful and are in fact are incompatible and inconsistent with what we do internationally. Uh, it, it's, it's a real head scratcher. Whereas Americans are the exact opposite. Americans are very good at knocking down uh, trade barriers between states. The, uh, the Supreme Court and the, and the federal government are very good at at making sure that states don't interfere with uh, tr- trade that crosses uh, state borders. And yet when it comes to international trade, Americans are much more, um, have many more difficulties with that. But perhaps that's understandable given that, uh, you know, the United States has Mexico as a neighbor, whereas Canada only has the United States as uh, as a neighbor. Yeah, and um, I think once again, this this speaks to the uh, to the heart of of uh, uh, national uh, national or provincial pride. Um, where, because uh, again, you mentioned Adam Smith, and he was staunchly against um, any sort of um, impediments to to free trade. Um, his philosophy of the invisible hand. Um, he he, I'm pretty sure he envisioned it working um, around the world where, you know, you didn't need governments um, enacting tariffs and all sorts of rules on um, the the free flow of goods and services across the planet. Um, But then again, um, when when countries and politicians um, view it as, you know, it's it's their country and in the best interest of their country, they have to block out um, everyone internationally and, and defend and shield their own local producers and consumers that that really tends to get in the way of um, often actually maximizing the prosperity for the country as a whole. Um, and, and they sacrifice that at the altar of um some some sort of broader political appeal. So finally, I wanted to ask you about your opinion on Canada's response to the pandemic with regards to its fiscal policy, um, which saw hundreds of billions, if not more, in spending and large stimulus checks alongside various other kinds of deficit spending. Um, so what is your what is your take on Canada's response and what do you think the short and long term effects of that will be? Yeah. Well, Canada, along with the U.S., ran up the largest deficits during the pandemic, uh, reflecting uh, that especially we, as discussed earlier, we pushed all this money directly out to employees who lost their job. We we broke that connection between employee and employer, and we're now starting to, to see the, the downside of that in labor shortages and rising inflation in North America. So uh, there's been an expense there. You know, the large deficits, as I mentioned, probably weren't avoidable in the short term, but we should have said, okay, we had this, uh, you know, it should have been very clear within three or four months, it should have been quite clear that 
overall, people did a very good job of adjusting. They worked from home, for example. People do adapted their business model. They brought in plexiglass shields and so on and so forth. That most industries adapted very quickly and with a great deal of innovation to the, to this shock. So governments were slow to stop this economy-wide um, support and start targeting on the very small number of industries, about 15, 20% in Canada and the US, of industries that were really struggling with things like social distancing, uh, like the hotels and airlines and uh, restaurants and so on. There were a small number of industries that were highly uh, affected by this, and we should have focused aid on these specific industries and helped them. That would have reduced the cost right away. Instead, what we're doing, and that would have helped bring down the cost right away, and then we should have brought the cost down to zero as the pandemic recedes. Instead, though, uh, both Canada and the U.S., governments obviously felt, well, we spent all this money, we got away with it in a sense, uh, so let's keep spending more. That uh, There's no downside to, to spending, that interest rates are low, so it's almost free. So let's start making portions of this spending permanent. And we've seen that here in Canada, the government's pledge to increase uh, social programs by uh, in a number of areas like childcare. And we're seeing the same push on with Biden's Build Back Better program in the U.S., um, that there's a real push on to make uh, some of this increase in spending, not just related to an emergency, but converted to a permanent increase and more social programs. So... Uh, and that, of course, will just lead to permanent increases in deficits, and it's going to make it more difficult for uh, in the longer term as interest rates start to rise, as inflationary pressures increase. We're quickly seeing the downside of this and that governments are going to have to uh, bury a burden of uh, sh sharply higher interest, uh, interest payments as this huge increase in debt becomes compounded, becomes multiplied by higher interest rates. Governments are going to regret that they made these commitments. The social programs are going to have trouble making their just their interest payments on the debt. And uh, in the longer term, they're just going to have to make some difficult decisions, as both Canada and the U.S. had to in the mid-1990s, about where are we going to cut back programs or increase taxes to pay for this. All right, Philip, um, those are all the questions I have for you today. Um, once again, I'd like to thank you so much for being on the show with us. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.